Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Today on the podcast, I speak with Dr. Roger Schwelt. Dr. Schwelt is quadruple board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary diseases, critical care medicine, and sleep medicine through the American Board of Internal Medicine. Dr. Schwelt is an associate clinical professor at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine and an assistant clinical professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. Dr. Schwelt's specific knowledge in respect to COVID-19 is not just theoretical. He is regularly treating patients in the ICU at Redlands Community Hospital and at San Giorgino Memorial Hospital in Southern California. As part of his website, medcram.com, and his massively popular eponymously named YouTube channel, Dr. Schwelt has produced hundreds of videos that demystify complicated medical concepts. These videos, which feature Dr. Schwelt's calm bedside manner, have had particular utility during COVID. In an era of inflammatory headlines and memes, Dr. Schwelt has thoroughly and even-handedly addressed so many of the important and legitimate questions that have come to the fore. In our conversation, we address many areas of confusion pertaining to vaccine effectiveness, natural immunity, transmissibility, and therapeutics. We also discuss supplements and lifestyle choices, including hydrotherapy, sleep, and diet. Dr. Schwelt and I share a yes and approach to prevention and treatment and a belief that good information enables people to make the best health decisions for themselves and their families. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Roger Schwelt. Dr. Roger Schwelt, thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. Good to be with you. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, I've just been such a fan of all of the videos that you've done um, on the MedCram platform. And I, I just want to acknowledge first your great work uh, that you've done providing 
thorough, consistent, evidence-based, calm information through a, a, this pandemic that has otherwise not been very calm. Um, you've had this very even-handed approach um, that is um, evidence-based, as I say, but also very open-minded, and, and you never shame people. And uh, I really believe that information provides freedom from fear. And we're living in this moment where it's so easy to devolve into a place of fear, given how much uncertainty there is. But, but when you're in a place of fear, you know, you really lose the capacity to make reasoned decisions. So I think your work has really relieved a lot of stress. And, um, and I th really want to thank you for helping people get informed so they can make calm, reasonable, uh, and the best health decisions for, for themselves and their families. So thank you for that. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's been a great salve, as I say, for a lot of the otherwise kind of sensationalized um, information that, that can be in the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, so first, I want to timestamp our conversation. So we're speaking on Friday, October 15th. Um, and the reason why I want to do this is because the ground conditions are always shifting. And uh, of course, one of science's great attributes is its versatility. Um, they can morph based on emerging data, and, and um, you've always been superlative in assessing the, the most recent data. Um, and I, I think uh, I'd like to springboard our conversation with your um, unique, um, if somewhat malodorous, Swiss cheese um, philosophy, um, which I love, that, that explores the myriad forms of prevention from severe viral infection, et cetera. And from there, we can examine uh, each um, cheese single separately, if you will. Yeah. So um, what is the, the Swiss cheese theory? Well, I wish I would have come up with it because it's brilliant. I, I saw actually somebody else come up with it and I really adopted it because it really explains everything. And to, to really explain it well, I've got to go back to medical school. When I first went to medical school, uh, it seemed like you know, you're learning books, you're learning answers, you've got this, you use this. And the expectation was, is that if you could only find the right medication, you could always cure that disease. And what we found out as medical students later on, and going into residency is that the human body is so complicated. And things are, there's so many variables, that nothing, nothing that you ever do in medicine is ever 100%. That's, that's the first thing that you learn is even if you have somebody that comes in with bacterial meningitis and you have the right antibiotic for it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to save their life because other things can happen. And so there's nothing that's 100%. And so because in medicine, anything less than 100% is unacceptable, what we find ourselves doing is trying to come up with multiple layers to try to get to 100%. And that's what is known as the Swiss cheese model, at least the way I present it. So imagine a block of Swiss cheese. And of course, Swiss cheese has holes in it. That's what makes it Swiss cheese, right? So you slice it up. And if you were to look at each an individual slice, you would notice that there are a number of holes in any particular slice. So that if you were to hold up this piece of Swiss cheese to try to protect you from uh, viral particles, if you will, um, there would be some particles that would get through those holes. Um, but the point is, is that if you were to put up the Swiss cheese slice next to it, and then one next to that, 
the amount of slices that you put in front of it, those holes, which are just basically cavities, would eventually end. And even though one slice would be solid in that area where there's a hole, it might have its own hole. And, and so the bottom line is this, really, is that the more layers you can put in front of something to protect you, the better off you're going to be. And that's really what's ingrained into healthcare professionals right from the get-go, is that there is no magic bullet. Let, let me give you an example for this uh, that you could all understand. In the operating room, one of the things that, that uh, we've been really working hard on as a society in medicine is to reduce the incidence of infections post-operatively. And so I could name off five different things that we do in the operating room to reduce that. For instance, the surgeons wear masks. Um, the room is under positive airway pressure so that no dirty air from the outside will come in. Uh, there's a scrub nurse that always makes sure that the area that's sterile stays sterile and there's no contamination. Um, the instruments are sterilized. The, the skin is cleaned and then sterilized. And so all of these are slices of Swiss cheese, if you will. And what's more, and here's the important part, is we don't say, well, why are we doing all of these things? It must mean that none of them work right? We would never say that in medicine. If we were to go into the operating room and say, the surgeon's wearing a mask because the sterilization machine doesn't work. And, or we wouldn't say that <laughs> we're using positive airway pressure because sterilization. No, that's just, that is completely foreign to medical thinking. So when I hear people say things like, oh, why are we doing this? It must mean that this isn't working. That's completely foreign to medical thinking. We try to do as many things as possible to get the effect at the end as close to zero as possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And honestly, it is very instinctive on some level. I mean, if you're an athlete and you're training to for a big tournament or for a big race, you know, you're going to cross train, you're going to do a whole bunch of different things, you know, knowing that there is this kind of mutual interdependence between your various systems that are working together to create the most optimal results, right? Exactly. Um So it, it really does make a lot of sense. I have a daughter who's applying to colleges right now. And she's not going to apply to it just one. <laughs> That's not a great metaphor, but right. you know, she's going to apply to a bunch of different colleges um, and, and hopefully have a good result. Um, but uh, let's spend some time peeling off some of these cheese singles. You know, specifically, kind of as it pertains to the elephant in the room, SARS-CoV-2, and and the disease COVID nineteen. So, given that there's uh, so much attention. Um, paid to the current vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna, and to a lesser extent, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, let's talk a little bit about that single, that cheese yeah. single. And I suppose given the emergence of some breakthrough cases, there is some concern um, about waning immunity with, with all the current vaccines. So uh, I suppose just against the the backdrop of the delta variant can you address general vaccine effectiveness um, as it pertains both to curtailing um, infection but also reducing hospitalization and maybe as part of that is there any marked difference in protection between the the different um, vaccines that are currently uh, in market yeah so that's a big topic in terms of vaccine effectiveness let, let me first tell tell your audience who i am uh, because one thing that I've noticed, Jeff, is just that um, 
is a trust uh, um, for authority and and where information is coming from is at an all time low. So I I, yeah. I don't represent any government agency. <laughs> I, I'm not paid by the vaccine companies uh, whatsoever. I, I'm a, a regular full time clinical physician. Um, I'm a pulmonologist. I have uh, boards in pulmonology and and sleep boards and critical care medicine. Um, and I work in an intensive care unit uh, and take care of patients with COVID-19. Um, I get paid for taking care of patients in the hospital. And the less patients I take care of, the less money I make. The more patients I take care of, the more money I make. And so um, despite all of that, I'm actually going against my incentive here and trying to get as least the amount of people in the hospital as possible um, so that they're, uh, they're taken care of because uh, that, that's what we all ought to be doing. That's the responsible thing. So what we've been doing on our MedCram channel is just looking at the data. And, you know, I, I don't care if it's if it's a drug that's off label, if it's a drug that's going for for label, if it's a vaccine or not a vaccine, it doesn't matter. The, the goal is, is how can we tighten up those holes in the Swiss cheese model to get as least the amount of people suffering at the other end? And, and that's sort of the backdrop to what I, I present this on. Um, if you look at the data. Thank you for that. There, yeah. If you look at the data for vaccines, there was recently actually a publication uh, looking at just the question that you asked. And, and the problem has been is we have a lot of data from over a year ago and, and, and in the spring, but it's all non-Delta. And really all we care about at this point is Delta because that's the majority. So we want a study that looks at Delta and we want a study that looks at the three vaccines. So there was just a paper that was published and I've got the numbers here in front of me. Um, it divides it in terms of looking at outpatient clinical visits and inpatient clinical visits and how to prevent those, which I think is a fair way of looking at it because that's how the original vaccines uh, for COVID-19 were FDA approved or given uh, emergency use authorization. Uh, how well did they prevent symptomatic disease? So as it stands in this uh, study, and this was looking at uh, June, July, and August, the Pfizer vaccine was about 77% effective at preventing outpatient visits to the emergency room or the urgent care, but 80% effective at keeping people out of the hospital. Uh, and that's Delta. Mm -hmm. uh, the Moderna was 92% effective at keeping people out of emergency rooms and uh, urgent cares, and 95% effective at keeping people out of the hospital. And then finally, the Johnson & Johnson, uh, that was the one shot, 65% effective at keeping people out of the emergency room and the urgent care, and 60% at keeping people out of the hospital. So some lower numbers there. That's Delta. That's recently. That's the newest numbers that we have. Now, I, I will say if we subdivide that a little bit more and we combine all the vaccines together, but then divide it out to those who were over the age of 75, 75 and older, versus those that were under the age of 75, the numbers panned out that for those that were under the age of 75, they were 89% effective at keeping people out of the hospital, whereas uh, over 75, it was 76%. And I think that was some of the data that got the FDA advisory committee to eventually approve the vaccine boosters for people over the age of 65, even though this was 75, but there was, it was turned down. I don't know. I don't know if your audience is aware of this, but when they, when they asked the advisory committee, should we give boosters to everybody? They turned them down 16 to three. And the reason why they did that yeah. in part was because of this data.
So a lot of different threads that I'd like to pull on there. First of all, it seems like the Moderna vaccine is the most effective and is, is not because it contains a higher dose or I wonder what your thoughts are there, which seems to be uh, producing the data that, that the Moderna vaccine seems to be preventing the, the greatest rate of hospitalization. Good question. So the Moderna dose is 100 micrograms and the Pfizer dose is 30 micrograms, so less than a third. And so the question is, is well, was is that the reason why? It, it's possible. We don't know the answer to that because we'd have to have tested it out with a lower dose to see. There could be other differences between the, the Pfizer and the Moderna um, vaccines. What I, would, what I would qualify that with is remember at the beginning when they tested these two vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine actually had 95% efficacy versus the uh, Moderna, which had 94% efficacy. Whether that was a statistical difference or not, uh, I think we could safely say probably not. What's different about now is it's a Delta variant. It's a different variant than what they were initially tested on. And so it could be that it's not the dose that was the, is making the difference currently, but the fact that the Moderna vaccine was better adapted to cover Delta. Now, once Delta goes away, mm -hmm. if there is another variant that comes back, we could be playing on a completely different ground. It could be um, a Pfizer again, or even the J&J &J vaccine, which maybe has better efficacy. Uh, I don't know if this is related to the dose or related to the variant. Yeah, and I think it's <clears throat> worthwhile just to mention that the variant seems to be causing higher viral loads, A, and B has a mutated or modified spike protein that seems to have the ability, uh, a greater binding strength. Um, uh, and so, it, so in combination with this kind of stronger or more potent variant, um, is there also a waning immunity that's happening um, with the vaccines, given that many people, at least in the United States, received those vaccines in February, March, and April, and there may be waning antibodies at this juncture, which are making people more susceptible to infection? Yeah, that's, this is a great question. There's a lot of stuff to get into with this. Um, first of all, let's, let's tackle this idea of lower antibody levels, because this is, this, there's a lot of data that's conflicting. There, is, there seems to be data that is suggesting that the lower the antibody level, and remember antibody levels is not the whole piece here, it's just one part of it, but lower antibody levels confer a higher risk of infection. Now, when I say the word infection, I'm choosing my words very carefully here. That doesn't necessarily mean increased levels of hospitalization. So they're not seeing that lower antibody levels lead to hospitalization. What they are seeing is that lower antibody levels lead to infection. Um, infection just simply means you're PCR positive. In fact, there's some data that seems to indicate that you need six times the level of antibodies to prevent infection than you do to prevent hospitalization. So in that sense, we are seeing lower antibody levels over time, and it could very well be that the vaccines are not able to prevent infection as well as they used to. That's a possibility. But there's some evidence that goes against that. Uh, the evidence that goes against that is that 
And this was a paper published in Nature that showed that when they took people who had previous infection, so this is people that have been actually infected with SARS-CoV-2, and they looked at them 12 months later, when they looked to see how much neutralizing antibodies they had against a particular variant like alpha, it was actually very good, but not so much so against delta. So again, these lower, the, the absolute value of the antibodies may be getting less, but there may be something more to this and that it's not just the lower antibody levels, but the fact that, again, it's a different, uh, it's a different virus. Now, a different uh, variant. Now, there's also evidence, and I just saw this recently published in the last uh, month or so, that looked at the B cells. As you may know, the B cells are responsible for making the antibodies, but there are something called memory B cells. And these researchers out of Italy found that while the regular amount of antibodies were decreasing, co uh, contrasting that, what they saw was that very specific memory B cells were actually increasing uh, over time and to the point where they were making more robust antibodies specifically against the spike protein. Um, this was seen in, in the vaccine uh, uh, recipients specifically, indicating that, again, it may not be a, a waxing of, uh, or sorry, a waning of, of uh, immunity over time. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a mixed picture, what we're seeing right now. The, the last part I will say is this. So we know that with the specific Delta surge that we had here in the United States, that there was a reduction in the immunity across the board. However, when they looked at those patients with Moderna and compared them to those who got the Moderna vaccine during the trials, uh, and why is this important? Because the people who got the Moderna vaccine in the trials were vaccinated in July of last year. Okay, July, August of last year. So they were able to actually look to see what their antibody response was a year later in or eight months later in March of this year or April of this year before the Delta came in. So in other words, what they were able to do was to bifurcate this question of whether or not is it Delta that's causing the increased infection or is it just the, the time since the last vaccination? And they did the research and they said, okay, what is it? Is it Delta or is it the time to infection? And the answer was, very interestingly, that in May, in April of May of this year, which was eight months since the Moderna phase three participants got it, there was no reduction. Uh, sorry, there was reduction against Delta, but there was no reduction against Alpha, meaning that they, they proposed that the majority of the reduction in immunity that we saw in the vaccine recipients at around the time of Delta had more to do with Delta than it had to do with the time since the last vaccination. Interesting. That yeah, makes there sense was almost to you. a yeah. It does. There was almost an inadvertent control group that that got right. um, developed there just uh, just by mere chance that they were able to c uh, collect that data prior to the the six one seven. Um, yeah, and they're, they're, they're studying these phase three participants very, very carefully because they are basically a few months ahead of everybody else. So they want to see what's going to happen and then be prepared for what's going to be happening here in three months. The same sort of thing with, with Israel. They vaccinated their, their uh, population very quickly. And so we look to them to see what the future is. But it's not 100%. Nice. Yeah. So if we were to hold up the Swiss cheese single 
and uh, and um, examine it for effectiveness as it specifically pertains to the vaccine, all of the vaccines. Um, it it appears to be a slice of cheese that has a few little holes in it, but more or less, it's a it's a fairly um, a full slice of cheese. I mean, it, 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 the vaccine has proved to remain effective even against Delta, though it might be a little less effective versus the ancestral strain. Right. And, and let me just put a little bit more to a point on that. Um, there's obviously you have to trust the studies that are coming out. You have to trust to see and make sure that uh, they're not manipulating the numbers in some way. You've got to trust that multiple studies, they're all sort of showing the same thing, that there still is efficacy, that they're all driving with one another. I, I'm in a very unique position because I, I'm an intensive care doctor and I work in the intensive care unit in a hospital that only has one intensive care unit in a town that only has one hospital. So basically, I know what's going on in this town in terms of, of COVID, in terms of who's being hospitalized and why they're being hospitalized, because I, I see them. And I can tell you, looking at the hospital data, our own specific hospital data, and we're in Southern California, that about 80% of the patients that we're admitting to the hospital for COVID-19 are unvaccinated. 20% of them are vaccinated, 80% of them are unvaccinated. Now, I work not on the regular floor of that hospital, but as I mentioned, in the intensive care unit. I am not seeing any patients who are vaccinated making it into the intensive care unit. All of the patients that I'm taking care of in the intensive care unit are all unvaccinated. And so what we're seeing then is, mm. is patients may get sick. They may, who are vaccinated, they may get sick. They may be infected. But generally speaking, they get discharged from the hospital before they make it to the intensive care unit. So for me, what I'm seeing with my own eyes is jiving with what I'm hearing in the data, that it, the vaccines are very efficacious at preventing the worst outcomes in COVID-19. Okay, thank you. So here's a question that I get all the time as we move into the, the next um, single of cheese, yeah. uh, which is if I have already had COVID-19 and now I have the antibodies, then why do I need to get the vaccine? And this question is impelled in many ways because there was a much ballyhooed study that came out of Israel, um, I think in July or August, that suggested that natural immunity provided superlative defense versus vaccine-induced community uh, immunity. So yeah. what, are, what are your thoughts here does, uh, regarding natural immunity and the defense that, that it provides versus vaccine-induced immunity? Well, I, I sure hope that uh, natural infection provides immunity. Otherwise, we've got a long way to go. Um, so yeah, no question. So let, let's look at prior to Delta, because I think we're pretty clear on prior to Delta. Prior to Delta variant, there was a great study that was done out of the Cleveland Clinic. And they had basically three groups of people that they followed prospectively. And that's really the way you need to do this is looking at it prospectively, a priority and looking at the study. They looked at people who were vaccinated that had not gotten infections, and they looked at people who were not vaccinated and looking to see if they got infections. Of course, they looked at people that had the vaccine and were infected as well. Uh, but the two groups that are of the most import are the ones that uh, had not been vaccinated and whether or not they got infection and those that got vaccinated and those had a previous infection. So 
The people right. who had previous infection looked identical to the people that have been vaccinated in terms of the number of cases. There were no cases. And that led the, uh, the authors of that study to conclude that prior infection with COVID-19 was just as good clinically in real world data as getting the vaccine in terms of preventing infection. And that was, that was pretty, pretty clear. It was a big study and it was, it was pretty clear. There was a couple of other studies that was looking at uh, where they were screening people in a um, Emirates airport. Um, and as I recall, they looked at those that had a history of vaccination, those that didn't have a history of vaccination, and they were looking to see what was the incidence of SARS-CoV-2 positivity. Again, it was a wash. It looked identical. So this all coming down on the side that natural immunity is just as good <clears throat> as vaccination. Then came Delta. So when the Delta comes, it's a different variant and you've got to reassess the data. And, and I was, as I was mentioning earlier, there was a paper that was published in Nature <clears throat> where they looked at people who had been infected with SARS-CoV-2 12 months prior. And they looked at the antibodies that were created from that infection and how well were they to prevent infection due to Delta variant. And, and the antibody levels were really low. Okay. So what they, and then they looked at a bunch of other examples. They looked at people who had never been vaccinated and who had never had uh, um, uh, uh, infection. And those were also low, of course, even after one shot of the vaccine, they were actually lower than those that had been previously uh, infected. The thing that gave uh, immunity to the Delta variant in terms of just antib antibodies, so we're just talking about antibodies here uh, again, and antibody isn't the whole picture. So let's, let's remember that. The, the best, the absolute best immunity against Delta were those people that had been previously infected and got one dose of the vaccine. That was at the top. Right. Then the next yeah. one down after that were people who had never been infected and got two shots of the, of the mRNA vaccine, either the Moderna or the Pfizer. And then below that, you had those who had been previously infected that don't get any more shots, which was kind of low level. And then of course, below that, people that had never been vaccinated or, or infected in the first place. So the, the, so the question to your, the answer to your question is what about natural immunity? We've got good real world data prior to Delta that seems to say you don't need it. We've got some data after Delta, which is not real world data because we don't have real world data yet. We're in the middle of the Delta variant and, it, and it's going away, but we'll have data that seems to say at least bench top that it may not be enough. It may not be enough to get the, to prevent infection. So the answer is we don't know. So from a public health standpoint, you've got to realize that they have very few levers that they can pull. Okay, um, they can't say they can't say okay, uh, we're going to test everybody and we're going to check their T cells and their B cells and we're going to figure out this and put it on a sliding scale and decide whether or not you get vaccinated. Or not. I mean, that's so complicated that you're not going to be able to do it. It's when you talk about public health, it's either vaccinate or don't vaccinate, and that's a difficult question. And so because of the fact that Natural infection can sometimes give you great immunity. Sometimes it doesn't give you great immunity. We were talking to Shane Crotty out of La Jolla, um, San Diego, uh, a number of months ago, and he was talking to us on our MedCram channel, and he made that point. I mean, there's a hundredfold difference in terms of antibody response in people who have natural infection, that just because they have natural right. infection or they have a history of an infection, it doesn't necessarily mean they've got good immunity. 
So that in the, in the nut of it is the, or the, the short of it is the answer to your question. I personally um, don't see a problem with if, if the government or the agencies were to come up with a, a protocol, especially in essential healthcare workers to say, hey, look, if you have been infected before, we'll do a quick antibody test. And if it looks good, you don't need to be vaccinated. I yeah. think that's a, I think that's a reasonable approach. It's certainly scientific. Um, I, I'm a little bit, I struggle to find out why they haven't approached that. Um, it may be because they think the worst of people that, oh, I'm just going to go out and, and get infected instead of getting vaccinated. I mean, it, it's possible, but it's, it's complicated. I haven't heard of what would be equivalent of the measles party. <laughs> uh, where people yeah. are intentionally getting yeah. infected, um, though, yeah. I mean, it, it may exist out there at this point. Any, uh, anything yeah. and everything probably exists. I mean, one of the things that I have read and heard, uh, and of course, uh, it's very clear that I'm, I'm not a doctor, um, so is that um, virus-induced antibodies are generated generally, well, they can be generated throughout the body, but they're more um, prevalent um, in the mucosa of the upper respiratory. And, you know, if you think about just logically, um, how you contract the, the virus, um, you know, through aerosol droplets and, you know, some, it enters some mucosal membrane or, you know, generally through your mouth, you know, the, the initial infection will likely happen in the throat somewhere or in the upper respiratory. And it, it seems, at least from what I've read, that the virus-induced antibodies are more prevalent there in that mucosa versus the vaccine-induced antibodies that tend to um, cluster more in the bloodstream and then uh, and subsequently might take longer to mount an attack. And, I, and I've heard this classified as immunoglobulin A versus immunoglobulin G. Um, but is this making sense to you? Yeah, that, yeah, that's exactly what they uh, what what the science is, is seem to indicate. There are a couple of caveats there, true, but um, let let's in our mind not think that the nasal mucosa is contiguous with the rest of the body. There is a barrier there. There are a number of barriers in the body that the body has to set up to to contain infections. There's a blood brain barrier, but there's also a barrier between the nasal mucosa and the rest of the body. And you're absolutely right, Jeff. When you get a vaccination, that is something that is systemically produced. There are antibodies, IgM initially, and then IgG uh, later on down the road. IgA antibodies are unique in that for a couple of things. Number one, they uh, are in the mucosa. They also are excreted in the breast milk. And the baby has mechanisms to pick up that IgA and actually incorporate it into its blood. So that's something that's actually... Um, wow. uh, pretty nice as well. One thing though that that I will say is that even vaccination will cause an increase in IgA antibodies. There's there's something called a class switch that occurs in the body. And so mothers that are vaccinated will make IgA antibodies and will excrete it into their uh, breast milk to their to their uh, breastfeeding babies as well. But I think the point that you make hmm. is that they, there may not be a lot of IgA antibodies in the mucosa itself. Although that has been seen to happen a few days after uh, infection, vaccination, things of that nature. But th that also may be the reason that um, why is it that we see 
higher breakthrough infections who are people who are vaccinated with the Delta variant. It's because we're putting the right. swab in that very area where the virus may be replicating, but hasn't made it back yet into the bloodstream. And, and very well, we'll probably never or very few times make it back into the bloodstream. And that may be the reason why vaccinated people may be getting infected, PCR positive, but not actually having the disease outcomes of COVID-19 and hospitalization and death that you would expect them to have. So uh, I think it's an excellent point. Yeah. And, and, and I they think are that also addresses potential yeah. transmissibility to yeah. between vaccinated people, right? Or from a vaccinated person to an unvaccinated person, just given that uh, it seems like the, the viral clearance is quicker um, with vaccinated people, but that because the viral loads with Delta seem to be high, you know, for three or four days, um, it, it, uh, a vaccinated person can be um, contagious versus someone who's unvaccinated, where they might be contagious for a longer period of time. Hence, you know, be hence there's more transmissibility there. But we can we can perhaps address transmissibility um, later. <laughs> but no, uh, I mean, you know, yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. The, the transmissibility, if we were to make an equation for transmissibility, and at the end of the equation, it was equal transmissibility. Here are all the variables that would be in there. The viral load, obviously higher, the more likely. The length of time that those viruses are shedding. Um, the, the other behaviors that the, the subject is doing. So if the subject is not wearing a mask um, and feels like they are impervious and can do a lot of things, that's going to also increase that coefficient. That's going to increase transmissibility. So, so to the degree that somebody who's vaccinated feels like they can go out and do things that somebody who's not vaccinated, who's actually going along with masking and isolating and doing these things that they should be doing, um, the, to that degree, yes, vaccinated people could potentially increase that variable in the equation, increase transmissibility. But all things being equal, if we, if we freeze all of the variables and look at these individually, there's no question that vaccination reduces the, not only the infectiveness of the patient, but also the transmissibility of that. We, we have m multiple studies. There was a study that was done before Delta where they showed, and this was a, kind of a bonus study. When I say bonus, this was not used, any of this data was not used for emergency use authorization. It was based on the ability of the vaccine to prevent hospitalization. But what they were able to show months later was that the vaccines had about an 80% success rate in preventing transmission. That has since dropped down to about 66% in the latest study looking at transmissibility with the Delta variant. So it's not zero, it's 66%. So what does that mean? Again, it's a, it's a slice of Swiss cheese that's got 33% of it is holes, but 66% of it is not. So to the degree that it could prevent it, that's, that's a good thing. The other thing that's really interesting, there was a recent study where they took patients that were vaccinated, unvaccinated, they both had viral loads. And you're right, the amount of time that they were shedding the virus was less in the vaccinated. That would bring down transmissibility. But there was also something else that was very interesting. They tried to see how infectious the particles were that were coming out that they were detecting. Now, remember that PCR is simply a test that looks for RNA fragments, unique RNA fragments, unique to the coronavirus. Well, it takes a lot more than a unique RNA fragment to infect somebody. And so as it turned out, a lot of these fragments that were coming off of these vaccinated patients were not infectious. And they figured that out by putting uh, vaccine cultures next to these patients to see how efficient they were at infecting these people. And they were not infected. Uh, they, they were, there was a reduced infectivity. 
The last study I'll mention is out of Israel, ironically. And in Israel, they found that there were some breakthrough cases in healthcare workers that have been vaccinated. When they did the trace research on it, they found that none of those breakthrough cases had passed their infection onto anybody else. So it was sort of a dead end breakthrough PCR positivity, but they had not transmitted it onto others when they did the, um, the, the case research. So I think all of those things, you know, we, we look at the, the headlines, which are always there to sensationalize that, oh, the vaccine is less effective. Oh, it's, it's not working as well. We have to be careful and say, well, what's the point of doing it anyway? Uh, again, it's a Swiss cheese. Yeah, it's got <laughs> holes just like every yeah. other Swiss cheese does, but it's another layer of protection. Yeah, great. And as we zoom out for a second, and now we've got we've got the vaccination slice, we have a natural immunity slice, so we're putting those you know over each other, and we're starting to close the over overall amount of holes here. Um, it does seem, per the data, as you mentioned, that you know natural immunity plus vaccination provides the best defense, the least amount of holes. Um, let's talk about another slice um, in, in the mix, which is therapeutics. Yeah. Um, so there has been a decent amount of public criticism that there was too much focus on uh, warp speed, on vaccine development, et cetera, at the expense of researching and developing therapeutics and antivirals. But However, we, we did see authorization of a number of therapies like monoclonal antibodies, um, HCQ for a time, remdesivir, and I think Merck now has, um, I'll never pronounce it right, molnupiravir. <laughs> That's um, great. That's better. <laughs> which, is, <yeah. laughs> which I think translates as Thor's hammer or something. I, I read. Yes, you're right. Uh, that's, now, uh, <laughs> that's now set for FDA review. Yeah. Um, and then there's, of course, a lot of discussion around ivermectin, which let's let's cubbyhole that just for a moment because that can take on its own uh, section of our conversation in a moment. Yeah. But what does the data tell us about the effectiveness of some of these therapeutics that have been leveraged and approved over the last year? Excellent question. So to, to sort of put it into cubbyholes, um, I want you to think about two phases of the infection. The first phase of the infection is at home and it involves the innate immune system. The innate immune system is what uh, you use. It, it creates a fever, it's, uh, it secretes uh, interferon, and it prevents infection of cells uh, from the virus, okay? That's early on. Later phase is after you develop pneumonia, you're in the hospital, this is the cytokine storm, this is the antibody response, this is the, the T cells that are killing the, um, the, uh, the cells of the lung, and uh, trying to get rid of cells that are infected with the virus, okay? So why did I break it up into those two? Because therapeutics that focus on reduction in viral transmission are gonna be very effective at the beginning phase of, uh, of the virus. So things like remdesivir uh, was tried and shown to be more effective if it was given early on and less effective if it was given later on, okay? Um, as opposed to, dexamethasone, a steroid, something that suppresses the immune system. So early on, you want things that boost the immune system. Later on, we're trying things that suppress the immune system because it's the cytokine storm. It's the inflammatory phase that's causing the inflammation fibrosis uh, in the lung. And so dexamethasone, here's, here's a drug that is off. I mean, it's off patent. It is 
manufactured cheaper than ivermectin. And there was a massive UK recovery trial that was done looking at this, despite the fact that the WHO initially recommended not using steroids because of some data in influenza that it seemed to increase viral shedding. And yet, to date, probably the most effective treatment that we have for those that are in the later phase in the hospital is dexamethasone. And so, and, and mm. so, so the question of is, while well, you'll never get therapeutics uh, that are cheap because no one's ever going to pay for it and uh, the drug companies aren't interested in doing it. I mean, look at dexamethasone. And it came out very early. And it, to, to date, it is the cornerstone of treatment for anybody that goes into the hospital. Six milligrams, dexamethasone, 10 days. Uh, remdesivir, not really that effective um, as much as, as dexamethasone. There was a WHO trial that said remdesivir doesn't even work. Uh, there was a couple of studies in the United States that seemed to indicate that there was some benefit of remdesivir. And that's why I think to this, to this day, it's still being used in people who come in early and, they're and it's used early. But again, the earlier you use remdesivir, the more effective it is. Ironically, the later you use um, uh, dexamethasone, the more effective it is. So people who are on ventilators, people who are on high doses of oxygen, dexamethasone works really well in those patients, not so much in those who are not requiring oxygen. So keep those two things separate and you'll, it'll make sense. So the other medication that you mentioned, molnipiravir, um, is a medication that has a similar action to remdesivir. It's basically like a Trojan horse. These, um, when the virus infects your body, it, it uh, hijacks your cell's machinery to make more copies of itself. One of the ways that it makes more copies of itself is by making, by duplicating its genome, which is RNA. RNA are made up of little bits of, of information. Well, one of those molecules, in this case, the medication, comes in, and instead of having that strict base pairing that we learned about in molecular biology, like A goes with T and G goes with C and all this, this comes in there and really the, the protein can put anything on there. And so the next time it copies, it's going to make 50% of the time a mutation. And the next time, it, another 50%. And a number of mutations up and down. So many mutations, in fact, that it basically just dies out. It, it, it's no longer uh, viable. And so this medication has been shown to reduce the incidence of severe, moderate um, uh, COVID-19 by 50%. What's nice about this medication is that it's an oral medication. So we've got uh, as you mentioned, monoclonal antibodies that can actually reduce it by 70%, uh, 75, 80%. But they're in an infusion that you have to set up in the emergency room. It's costly. It's time consuming. You can't get a lot of people in to do that. Here, you prescribe this medication. They start it within um, 10 days of symptoms. And in those people who are over the age of 65, have comorbidities like congestive heart failure or hypertension, diabetes, it can reduce the incidence of hospitalizations by 50%. That, that's huge. Mm, yeah. Okay. So let's talk for a moment about ivermectin. Um, obviously, a lot of public discussion about this right now. Um, it was obviously originally uh, developed as an antiparasitic that's used in, in livestock, but, um, but has a very clear uh, human applicability. Um, mostly antiparasitic for scabies, I believe, mostly. And, uh, and the doctors that I, I think worked on that um, even got a Nobel Peace Prize for, for their work. So the sort of hype of this thing as being, you know, just a horse dewormer, I think is very, very unfair. Um, yeah. and, uh, and kind of sensationalist and just, you know, just a really 
not a very productive meme that's existing on, on the internet. Um, so there are a variety of trials, particularly from the global south, uh, many of which have been small and not always randomized or controlled, um, but trials nevertheless, and a number of meta-analyses um, that appear to support the use of ivermectin as both a prophylactic and a treatment. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, what the, what is the data telling you with regards to the prescription of, of safe human doses of ivermectin, both as a preventative and a, and a treatment. Yeah, the, and you just summed it up very nicely there because there's the question of whether or not it could be used as a treatment, whether or not it could be used as a prophylactic, what's the appropriate dose. So yeah, there's no question that this is a medication that has been approved for use in human beings. And, and just to sort of comment on what you're saying there, there, there are there are literally two extremes on this. There are people that are saying that this is an animal medication and then there are those that are saying that this thing has like a 90%, it'll just you know kill COVID in all cases. And as I said at the beginning, not even antibiotics have that kind of efficacy. So when you're going around on, you know, on one side, uh, when people are going around on one side saying that this medication is a miracle drug, it's going to take care of it 95% of the cases, um, it's, it's, uh, sen it's basically sensationalism. And that tends to put people off in the middle that are working on things because when things are too good to be true, then I mean, sound too good to be true, then they usually are too good to be true. But then on the other hand, you've got people that are saying, you know, you should never look at this. Even just talking about this makes you a crazy person. That's also not productive, as you mentioned as well. And I, and I really um, appreciate that uh, what we need to do is take a rational approach, look at this, this thing clinically and see whether or not uh, it, it works. So to get to that, you've got to realize that there are different levels of evidence. If you want to know if something works for people in a different, in, in a specific situation, you have to do a randomized placebo-controlled trial in the, in the population that you want to treat for that disease that you want to treat them for. That's the that's been the benchmark for the FDA for years and years and years. A lot of the data that we have up to this point doesn't meet that bar because of a number of issues. Number one, they're not randomized. They're not placebo controlled. There's small studies and they're done outside of the population. So this is the, this is the issues that we're having. Let me give you a, just a brief example of why it matters in this case that we need to know this. If you were to take 100 people in the populations in South America, Brazil, uh, Iran, uh, these places, what you would find is that in some cases, 50 to 60% of them have no, subclinical parasitic infections. Um, these are, they're, they're not, they're not uh, causing disease, they're just there. And, and this, is the, this is the reality when you look at this. So if these people were to come down with COVID-19 and you admit them to the hospital, what's the, what's the foundation of treatment for these people with COVID-19? It's a steroid. The steroid suppresses the immune system. So up to this point, the parasitic infection, the immune system have been at loggerheads, the immune system keeping them in check. And now you give them a big dose of dexamethasone and the parasitic infection can take over. It, it doesn't take a, you know, a research scientist to understand that if you also add a anti-parasitic medication, your outcomes might be better. So the question is, is would this still work in populations like in the United States where you don't have a 50 to 60% parasitic infection rate 
concomitantly or at the same time. And the only way to find that out is to do the studies. So the only way we can really know whether or not ivermectin works is to do a randomized placebo-controlled trial. And the good news is, is that those trials are underway. There's one at Temple University. There's a number of other trials. I would just say, though, that um, these trials have been looked elsewhere. There's a trial that is called the TOGETHER trial, and it's a combination of McMaster University in Ontario and also some hospitals uh, in Brazil. And they are looking at different medications. They looked at ivermectin and actually they've actually dropped and stopped that study because they haven't seen the endpoint that they want. Where they are seeing an endpoint and some promising is another medication that we haven't talked about and that's fluvoxamine, which, which may be uh, coming up uh, later on in terms of, of treatment. But um, in terms of randomized placebo-controlled trial data, where we have thousands of people like, you know, the vaccine trials were 80,000 when you combine Moderna and, and Pfizer, 80,000. These trials that we're talking about are, you know, a few hundred. So we don't have those high quality studies. Now, another one, another person could say, well, in a pandemic, when people are dying, do you really need those high quality studies? I think that's a, a reasonable argument to make in a pandemic that if there's high benefit, potentially high benefit and low risk, yeah, maybe maybe there is a benefit to that, and some countries have actually uh, done that, and um, I think that's a reasonable thing for them to do. I think everybody has to make that call. So, where do I think ivermectin is right now? I think that some studies clearly show a signal. I don't know if that signal is real or not, and I would leave it up to the individual and their physician to decide whether or not that's a medication that would be beneficial for them. That they have to make that call. But in terms of does it meet the criteria? that where the FDA would approve it? The answer to that is clearly no. We haven't had, had those trials. Right. And even though there's a kind of reputable researchers, and I'm thinking of like Tess Lowry, for example, people that have done large meta-analyses studies, um, which essentially combine a lot of these smaller studies, those also don't meet the standard, that gold standard, in, in your opinion. Is that correct? Yeah, a meta-analysis. There's a there's a saying in in statistics that uh, meta-analysis is to analysis like metaphysics is to physics. <laughs> uh, that may be a little <laughs> bit overblown, but uh, um, yeah, the, the problem is is that I take at offense the, at that. As someone who spends a lot of time thinking about metaphysics, I take great offense. <laughs> <laughs> this is what they say. Um, uh, so so, but it's not like physics. Let's let we, we, I think we can agree on that. Um, Okay. So the so the problem is is that when you look at these randomized placebo controlled trials, the endpoints in them are all different. One is you know discharge, mortality, um, and so it's this it's this grab bag of, of endpoints. And then when you look at the comparators in these meta analyses, it's like you know ivermectin versus nothing, or uh, ivermectin plus hydroxychloroquine versus hydroxychloroquine and nothing, or it's uh, ivermectin and doxycycline and azithromycin. And something else versus this kitchen sink. And so how, how do you really parse all of that out? It's very difficult to do when you have all of these comparators, you have different populations, you have different endpoints. You really need a large, well-designed, randomized placebo-controlled trial. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the countries that have not been able to avail themselves of the vaccine in, in great quantity um, have put together these kits um, you know, of 
vitamin D, zinc, yeah. ivermectin, et cetera, because they're just working really just with what they have to address a problem. Um, yeah. and, uh, and as you say, I mean, ivermectin has been prescribed off label before, has a pretty safe, you know, profile as far yeah. as it goes, um, yeah. kind of when taken in the right doses. So there may, you know, be a, a completely legitimate argument for, um, for ivermectin in the absence of, of being able to, um, you know, avail oneself of some of the other therapeutics or vaccines that, that is, you know, seems to be concentrated in the United States and other kind of more wealthier Western countries. So anyway. Right. I mean, uh, clearly, I don't personally believe that we should not try anything unless it is FDA approved. I mean, obviously, in a pandemic, people are dying. We've got to do some things that make sense. Um, Maybe they're off label. But but the key to that is looking at the benefit versus the risk. If the risk is extremely low, what have you got to lose? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like vitamin D, for example, although exactly. there's a lot more real d- data there around vitamin D, but the yeah. risk benefit is it's so clear because right. uh, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone having toxic doses of, of vitamin D. It's um, very rare. But there seems to be like tremendous upside. So maybe we'll use that as an on-ramp to... Um, to move into another slice of cheese. Um, I'm going to wear this, this metaphor out eventually. Um, but, um, and, and talk about, um, supplements and, and lifestyle, um, as other, uh, ingredients or as other contributors towards, you know, protection and prevention. Um, so maybe actually as a precursor to that, you could spend a couple minutes, and you did this briefly before, but just delineating between the innate and adaptive immune systems, yeah. um, because a lot of what we're going to talk about have to do with, you know, sleep and vitamin D and quercetin and hydrotherapy, things that actually yeah. um, are being leveraged for boosting or bolstering the the immune system. So maybe you could delineate between yeah. the adaptive and, um, and the, uh, the uh, innate. Yes. So... The innate immune system, which is the first part that that really takes on SARS-CoV-2, is probably the most important part of our immune system to build. Uh, the adaptive is going to kick in eventually. It's the it's the cytotoxic T cells. It's all of those things. But the innate immune system is very strong when you're young. It is the part that's responsible for giving you a fever. It's the part that's responsible for taking care of this virus early on so that it never gets to the part where you need to go to the hospital and need to be hospitalized. So anything that you can do to improve your your whole immune system, but specifically your innate immune system is well worth the hassle. Um, To give you an example about how powerful the innate immune system can be, there were a number of studies that were done that showed that um, 14% of all severe COVID uh, infections in one cohort was due to just a few metabolic uh, inborn errors of metabolism in the innate immune system. Let me let me rephrase that. When your innate immune system is activated, it produces something called interferon. Interferon is well named because it interferes with the virus and what it wants to do. Now you'll be uh, amazed to hear that in those patients that have a problem with mounting interferon production, in almost every single one of those cases, they had a severe infection to COVID-19. Some people have antibodies against interferon 
antibodies against interferon. And so their interferon levels are very low. All of those had very severe COVID-19 infections. This was published in the very prestigious journal Science. The other, uh, the other aspect of this is uh, looking at uh, other infections. So for instance, hepatitis C is a virus that infects the liver. 20 years ago, we did not have a cure for hepatitis C. It was a chronic viral infection that caused cirrhosis in patients. Today, we can eliminate just about every case of hepatitis C if we give them high enough doses of interferon. So it's called pegylated interferon, and we can actually cure people of hepatitis C. So this, this idea of, of improving your innate immune system is very, very important into suppressing it. Now, you'll, you'll know, there's one other thing I want to uh, tell you. A lot of people think, well, my immune system is good. I take care of it. I sleep. I do all these things. One thing that we knew very early on in this pandemic, and we knew it because of research that was done on SARS-CoV-1 or SARS-CoV, the initial SARS virus, is that there are proteins in the virus itself that specifically, and in, do I, dare I say intentionally, uh, reduce the effectiveness of the innate immune system. So it actually suppresses right. the body's ability to mount an interferon response. And I, I think that's an important thing is that here, it's not just the virus that you're, you're attacking on the level. It's going behind the scenes and crippling the very thing that you need to do to be able to attack that virus. Devious, that little bugger, yeah. isn't he? It's <laughs> very devious. It is. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, uh, some, most, yeah. most immunologists will tell you that most viruses today that have a bad impact on the human body do so because they have mechanisms in their viral packages that specifically interact with your immune system to cripple it and suppress it. Hmm. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the things that can um, upregulate the immune system. And let's start with vitamin D. So yeah. what has the data shown regarding vitamin D and COVID-19? Okay. Well, we actually have a whole video that's uh, about an hour long, but I'll try to compress it down. So we know that there are vitamin D receptors in the immune system, in the white blood cells. We know that. And vitamin D is a steroid hormone that can go deep into the nucleus of these cells and actually affect promotion and transcription of genes, which will change the behavior of those white blood cells. We know that as well. We know that vitamin D levels are associated with worse, low vitamin D levels are associated with worse outcomes in COVID-19. Now that can't tell us causation because of the way those studies were designed. It only says that it's associated with it. So the question is, is are low vitamin D levels causing COVID-19? I don't think we have superlative data on that as yet. And even more important, the question is, is does supplementation with vitamin D over a long period of time reduce the ability uh, for you to get infected or, or even go to the hospital? Here's what we do know in terms of that. There was a meta-analysis. So uh, here we go again, but it was a, a meta-analysis of 25 different randomized controlled trials. It was published uh, in the British Medical Journal back in 2018, and it showed that regular low level, and what I mean by low level, this was you know less than a thousand, maybe even less than that, supplementation with vitamin D 
over a long period of time reduce the incidence of acute chest infections by a significant amount. In, in one of the uh, trials cohorts, it was uh, greater than 50%. Uh, there was a study called TILDA, T-I-L-D-A, that, that comes out of Ireland that looked at the same sort of thing of prospective study looking at supplementation with vitamin D and it reduced the incidence of acute chest infections in that cohort. What we don't have yet is randomized controlled data looking at vitamin D in COVID-19. But here we go. Here we have all of the all of this data, some of it case control data, so it can be uh, con- there can be confounders. We have randomized controlled trial data in other viral infections that seem to indicate that vitamin D supplementation is beneficial. So when you put all of this data together and couple it with the fact that we see that SARS-CoV-2 infections goes up when the levels of vitamin D go below 50 nanograms per deciliter, you put all of those together and what do you say? The, and the risks of vitamin D toxicity are extremely low. I think that firmly goes in the line of supplementing with vitamin D. Look, even Fauci says that he supplements with vitamin D. So I think this one's a no-brainer, supplement with vitamin D. And what is the, uh, in terms of dosage, do you have a recommended amount of international units uh, of when you're supplementing? And then are there other ways to get adequate vitamin D either through the sun, if you live actually in a sunny place or through, um, through diet. So the, so just for your listeners to understand, vitamin D is the same as vitamin D3 is the same as vitamin D2. It's all the same. There's no difference. Uh, It's just difference in terms of the source. Um, and I think they say vitamin D3 may actually be a little bit more effective than vitamin D2, but that's questionable in terms of the dose. I take about 5,000 international units. I, I don't know of anybody that's gotten toxicity from taking 4,000 international units a day. And um, that is what the society, the, the endocrinological societies recommend for those people that feel that they're at risk for vitamin D deficiency and they don't, and they're not followed by a physician in terms of getting levels, which I would recommend getting, then uh, 4,000 international units a day would be the highest that they would recommend without being followed. Um, People take 10,000 units. People, I've seen people take 50,000 units. I wouldn't recommend taking 50,000 units a day. I think that's excessive and it could probably lead you to vitamin D toxicity. Um, remember that these levels are a little bit higher than what we would see in for, for bone health. These levels for bone health were worked out decades ago. They weren't looking at immuno, the immunological effects of vitamin D. They're looking at the bone mineral effects. So that's why these levels might be a, a little bit higher. But again, I think the best thing to do is to get tested so you know where you are and then, um, and then supplement from there as necessary. My advice would be to get up to around 50. Um, that's what my advice would be. Now, in terms of sun exposure, you've got to mem- remember that the, it's the ultraviolet radiation from the sun, particularly UVB light that does this. UVB does not go through glass. So it's got to be you know skin to sun with nothing between. And then I would also uh, point out that the 35th parallel, which is kind of the southern border of Tennessee, is the line at which if you live above, you're probably not getting enough sunlight to give you all of your vitamin D that you need and you should probably be supplementing it. If you're lucky enough to live south of that, then making sure you get outside in the sun is is very important. There's a recent study that showed that we spend only 7% of our time outside. And so there's a lot of time that we're not getting sun exposure. Even if you're in an office next to a window, you're not getting ultraviolet B radiation. So you're not getting any vitamin D even though you're in the sun. 
Yeah. And I've also heard that if you have more melanin, your body has a little bit more difficult time um, intaking vitamin D. So if, if you have more melanin and you live in the Northern Hemisphere, your needs for vitamin D supplementation might be even greater. It's true. Uh, the older you are, uh, the darker skin you are, and the, uh, the higher in latitude are all uh, risk factors for vitamin D deficiency. And if you're any of those, I would definitely recommend getting your vitamin D levels checked. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, hydrotherapy or yeah. um, hot and cold therapies um, that can... Uh, I, I ice bath sometimes and I sauna regularly you know, when, when I have one available. And I know that these can trigger hormetic responses um, that can yep. kickstart um, the immune system's de defense mechanisms. And in some cases, even in inducing fever seems like uh, it has a, uh, a benefit to, um, to clearing virus. So can you talk a little bit about hot and cold therapies and how you actually get them and are they, uh, are they beneficial? Yeah, so I I am really uh, really interested in this area of of topic, uh, primarily because this is something that everybody could do, and it's not really rationed. In other words, we wouldn't have to make uh, pills in a pandemic. This everybody has access to hot water. Everyone has access to cold water. This is something that they could do if there was a pandemic or a variant down the road where there wasn't enough medications or hospital beds. So I think this is really something that everybody should learn. And, and by the way, before I talk anymore, before I forget, if anyone's interested in, there's a couple of websites where they actually go through the therapies and, and the protocols. Uh, one of them is uh, hydro, the number four, covid.com. Hydro, the number four, covid.com. And the other one is hydrotherapyathome.com. And both of those are, are excellent resources. But basically what's going on with this, what the purpose of this is, is it's not the heat applied to the body that is causing the virus to be destroyed. No, it's, it's the heat that is stimulating the immune system to do something that it wouldn't ordinarily do. So hydrotherapy is the practice of applying hot compresses, hot, moist heat to the body for at least 20 minutes, and then quickly exposing them to very cold, uh, ice cold temperatures for about a minute. And that, that, what that does is it stimulates the portions of the immune system, specifically the innate immune system, that can battle the virus and, uh, and, and counteract the suppressive proteins in that virus that are suppressing interferon response. Um, there was a nice study that was done where they took monocytes out of the human body at different temperatures. The monocytes are the cells that are responsible for secreting interferon. And they noticed that once they got up to about 39 degrees Celsius, it was about 102 or so uh, in terms of Fahrenheit, that there was a tenfold increase in interferon response. And if you think about it, what happens when you get a viral infection? You get a fever. And children are much better at making fevers than adults are. And it kind of goes along with the fact that the innate immune system is so strong in children. And so what the feeling is, is that you, you, you heat up the body, you create this immune uh, uh, response, high interferon levels, and you, you change the course of the disease early on before it infects the cells and before it causes the cytokine storm. There's a couple of uh, research studies that have looked at this. I mentioned one. Uh, there's a lot of studies going on in Finland. Finland is a, is a country where they actually have more saunas 
than they have people. So everybody in Finland could go into a sauna at the same moment and they'd still have room for you and I to go in there as well. Um, they actually did very well during the pandemic if you compared them to Norway, to um, a lot of those Nordic countries, obviously taking Sweden out of there because Sweden uh, had a little bit of a different uh, philosophy in how they dealt with the virus. But they did actually very well. Uh, they, they kept their uh, cases down and their deaths. Where this all goes back to, and I started to look into this from a historical setting, is there is a, a historical basis for a lot of this. I, I first started to, to realize this, Jeff, that when I talked to people in various different countries, whether they were from Iran, whether they were from Africa, whether they're from Southeast Asia, uh, even the United States, everybody had a story to tell about when they were sick and they were young, what grandma did to them, right? They'd always put, they'd always heat them up or let the fever, let, let the fever do what it needed to do. And then, uh, and then let the, the fever run its course. And, um, and it seemed to do well. So I decided to look back in history and I came across uh, a really amazing, um, uh, situation in uh, 1927. So prior to 1927, there was a uh, Austrian psychiatrist who ran an insane asylum in Austria by the name of Dr. Wagner Jorek. And he noticed that his neurosyphilis patients would become actually uh, better, better symptomatically when they had a fever. And these neurosyphilis patients, were, of course, were infected with syphilis. The treatment for syphilis today is penicillin. Penicillin hadn't been discovered. There was no way to treat these patients. So he had this idea of, of taking blood from malaria patients, injecting it into these neurosyphilis patients. Uh, and of course, the malaria would cause very high fevers. And sure enough, these patients with neurosyphilis were cured from the malaria, just from the high fevers. So then he would treat them for malaria because they had the treatment at the time. And these patients were cured. Uh, now for this, he actually got the Nobel Prize in medicine in 1927. Uh, the very next year, ironically, in 1928, we discovered penicillin. And uh, this was much easier to treat people with pills and tablets. And of course, we went down the, the, the way of the FDA and, the, and randomized controlled trials and pills and, and medications. And uh, look, as a critical care physician, I use medications all the time to save the lives of my patients in the intensive care unit. I can tell you, if I did not have medications, many, many patients would die. Uh, I don't disparage at all what we have set up in this country in terms of what we have for medications and, and some of the miracles that we can do with them. But on the other hand, I think that we've may, maybe tossed on the trash pit a whole area of therapeutics that may actually have benefit. And that is being some of these natural remedies that we're now talking about, like hydrotherapy. Um, in those lines, I went back and researched a little bit more. Back in 1918 and 1919, during the, the H1N1 pandemic, there were a number of, um, of sanitariums in the Northeast, uh, Adventist sanitariums that had gotten a lot of their information from John Harvey Kellogg, who ran the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. And he was a big, big use, user of hydrotherapy. They, they would set up these clinics. Uh, it was kind of funny to see these photographs with heads coming out of these little holes and their whole bodies in these rooms being heated up with very high fevers and, and, and heating them up. Well, what, do, what Dr. Rubel, uh, who was the one of the medical directors in the Northeast and one of these sanitariums did is he compared what they did in the sanitariums to what was going on in the army hospitals. They were using uh, in the army hospitals high doses of aspirin because they felt that the fever was causing fever and, and death. Whereas in these in the Battle Creek sanit or in the uh, in these sanitariums in the Northeast, 
they were isolating them. They were doing uh, hot fomentations, which is basically hydrotherapy. They were uh, changing their diets, uh, simple diets. They were getting them outside into the sunlight, vitamin D, uh, and they were exposing them to fresh air and the phytocides from the trees and, and these, these uh, things that have been shown to improve the immune system. And they had one-sixth the case fatality rate in these uh, sanitariums than they did over in the army hospitals during that pandemic. So uh, in looking at this, I think this is a very viable way. And I'll tell you, anybody that calls me and have, has called me in the year, say, hey, I've, I know somebody that's come down with COVID-19. I will tell them immediately that uh, without even getting a test, if they're having cough, fevers, anything like that, uh, you know, go ahead and get the test, go ahead and, and call your doctor. But while you're waiting to get into the hospital or while you're waiting to do whatever it is that they're going to do, start doing some hydrotherapy. I point out the website. I tell them to go there, learn the protocol, and uh, and we can get into that if you want. But basically, this is something that if you start early, I'm convinced that it, it counteracts the virus's uh, suppression of, of interferon in the body. Hmm, that is fascinating. And um, I mean, I know that um, being subjected to low grade or, or stresses over a, over a shorter period of time, like extreme hot heat or extreme cold, or even fasting, intermittent fasting, for example, or um, you know, uh, uh, hit you know, high intensity high intensity exercise, um, that it can create. Um, sort of these blasts of oxidative stress that in the, that, you know, too much of it would be very yes. deleterious to your, to your health, but in short doses seems to be key to longevity. And I've heard even telomere length and all this other yeah. kind of stuff. So it is a, I think it's a fascinating, um, uh, uh, topic to, um, uh, to explore. And I will definitely put those, um, those websites in, in the notes. Yeah. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about sleep. Oh yes. Um, given it's such a um, a focus of your work, and um, you know, and I do want to cover as many of these things that we can actually take into our own control to yeah. um, you know to, to boost our immune systems and, and benefit our health. So, what is the relationship between sleep and the immune system? And then also sleep and vaccine efficacy, which I find fascinating. Yeah, those two actually really go together because they, they describe uh, with each other exactly what it is that's going on. So sleep is a way of your body to recharge. And one of the things that sleep does is it drops cortisol levels. That's just one aspect of sleep is dropping cortisol levels. We know that cortisol levels have a deleterious effect a bad effect on the immune system. Uh, sympathetic nervous system uh, is also amped up uh, when you're awake. It is dropped very nicely when you go to sleep. That's also important in terms of signaling um, the immune system and making sure that your immune system is working correctly. So sleep is one of those low hanging fruits that everybody can do very easily. In fact, when we first started making the videos uh, on COVID-19, normally I was making videos about, you know, the lungs and the heart and for students. When we first started making these videos and we had no vaccines, we had no treatment, and I was trying to figure out ways that people could improve their ability to escape the virus. One of those things that we talked about looking at the research was sleep. 
And that's hard to do when you're worried about things, but sleep is really important. So the first thing we want to do is let's talk about the quantity of sleep that you should be getting. If you're an adult, you should be getting at least seven hours of sleep a night, full stop. Uh, if you're getting less than seven hours of sleep, you're jipping yourself out on the restful nature of sleep and the rechargeability nature of, of sleep in your life. Now, that's hard to do because of the society that we live in. Why? Because lights are on at night. We've turned night into day and we still have to get up early to get to work the next morning. And so what we do is we'll just say we're going to make up for it on the weekend, but that's actually not the way we ought to be doing things. The second part of it is quality of sleep. So sleep, the whole night of sleep is not... It's not uniform. Certain times of sleep, you get certain types of sleep. Certain types of sleep lead to certain benefits. One of those benefits is growth hormone. Growth hormone is like the holy grail of the fountain of youth. Uh, there was a time there where people were injecting themselves with growth hormone because they thought it was going to make them younger and feel better. And in fact, uh, there's some people that actually did feel that way. Well, there's a way for you to naturally make your own growth hormone. And that is to get something called slow wave sleep. Slow wave sleep or delta sleep or N3 sleep, all of those are the same names for the same type of sleep. Well, the problem is, is that that type of sleep comes on early on in the night. That's going to be between the hours of 9, 10, 11, 12. After that, you're not getting much slow wave sleep. And so if you're constantly waking through those hours, you're going to miss out on that slow wave sleep that you should be getting. So just doing that is right there, would have a huge impact on your immunity and your, your well-being. Getting back to what you were saying though about uh, antibodies, they did a study where they subjected students to getting the, the flu vaccine. And they've also done some recent studies with the COVID-19 vaccine as well. And they found that those people that have a good night's sleep before they get the vaccine, even the night before or in the week before, have much better antibody responses after the vaccine. So this may be the reason why mm. some people are having breakthrough. It's, it's a good hypothesis. I'm not sure if that's the answer, but we certainly know that the sleep that you have in the days leading up to a vaccination can affect how the vaccination affects your body. Got a Delta sleep might ward off the Delta variant. There you go. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> Check. think of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, now, your body naturally excretes melatonin at, at a certain time. Do, do, does that vary um, individual by individual? Um, and would you recommend supplementing with melatonin? Yeah, so there is something called dim light melatonin onset, D-M-L-O, dim light melatonin onset. And this is a time of the day that melatonin starts to be secreted from the pineal gland into your body. Now, that time period is specific to your circadian rhythm. So if you are a night owl, it's going to be a little bit later. And if you're a lark, a morning lark, it's going to be a little bit earlier. And sometimes that can be a problem. And if it is, there are things that we can do in sleep medicine to move those things. <clears throat> to that effect, exposing your eyes to bright light when dim light melatonin onset is occurring will cause that dim light melatonin onset to shift later in the night. So think about what happens. You come home and you've had a long day at work, it's dark, and normally, 100 years ago, you would go to bed. But instead, you relax in front of the television, light is hitting your eyes, 
uh, the lights are on, perhaps you're reading or you're doing homework or you're doing your taxes or you're doing some sort of work associated with work. And what happens is, is that that constant exposure of light to your eyes is going to cause your circadian rhythm to delay. So now instead of getting sleepy at 9 or 10, you're getting sleepy at 11 or 12, maybe even 1 or 2 in the morning. Of course, your alarm clock doesn't care and it gets you up at the same time every day, 5.30 or 6. And so what you're doing is you're squeezing the number of times or the number of hours that you can sleep. And of course, this is going to cause a problem on the other end. If, if you keep exposing your eyes to bright light, you'll be tired, but you won't feel tired when, when it's time to go to bed. The way to counteract that is to not expose your eyes to bright light at night, but rather to expose your eyes to bright light in the morning. That has the opposite effect. When you expose your eyes to bright light in the morning, it tends to advance your circadian rhythm so that you are going to sleep earlier and earlier and your dim light melatonin onset occurs earlier and earlier. Fascinating. So you should take your cup of coffee outside in the morning and start that circadian clock then. I'm not sure it works exactly that way, but it yeah. sounds like uh, that would be good advice. And I, I would be careful with coffee as well because uh, coffee, well, <laughs> yeah. caffeine can cause sleep problems as well. And for those who have insomnia, it, it actually lasts longer than you think it does. Okay. I'll say, how about green tea? There you go. <laughs> okay. Well, on that point, um, are there foods um, and a diet that you recommend um, to bolster your immune system, like, for example, quercetin, which is a polyphenol flavonoid that is anti-inflammatory, or other anti-inflammatory foods, or let's say probiotics, um, fermented foods, et cetera, that can... Uh, populate a healthy uh, plethora of bacteria in your gut or prebiotics, you know, fiber-rich um, plants that can then feed uh, a healthy microbiota, which of course is very connected to the immune system. It's right there yeah. in your gut. I uh, wonder what your general um, viewpoint is on diet and nutrition. Okay. So this is where it comes down to. I want you to imagine a cliff and uh, we have different people standing on the plateau and some are very close to the cliff and some are not very close to the cliff. What determines how close to the cliff you are is how much inflammation you have in your body. That inflammation can be coming from many different places. And so um, what happens is a gust of wind comes up and those that are very close to the edge of the cliff fall off and they die. Those that are far away from the cliff may get blown a couple of feet, but they're still on the plateau and they haven't fallen down. That's what's going on in the human body when they get exposed to COVID. Some people wonder why do some people die and other people don't. And the reason is, is because of the amount of inflammation going on in the body. We know that as you get older, there's more inflammation that's occurring. That people that are more obese have more inflammation. People with kidney problems have more inflammation. People with cardiovascular disease have more inflammation. And so anything that we can do to reduce inflammation in our body is going to help in terms of COVID-19, but it's also going to help with a, a whole host of other things. So what are things that we can eat that are going to reduce inflammation or their antioxidants? So you mentioned quercetin. 
You mentioned, um, uh, well, there's another one that we can talk about, which is N-acetylcysteine. I know they're trying to work on taking that off of the over-the-counter market, but N-acetylcysteine is a recharger of your antioxidant system. Glutathione is another recharger of your antioxidant system. Did we mention vitamin C? Um, anything that has the word berry in it. Um, uh, so raspberries, strawberries, blackberries, gooseberries, boysenberries. I mean, the list goes on. These are chock full packed full of antioxidants and things that are going to help your immune system be farther away from that edge uh, when that wind blows when you get infected with SARS-CoV-2. But there's another thing that uh, you may not know about, and this is recent research that has come about looking at something called sialic acids. So what are sialic acids? We all have seen the, uh, the, the cells and they have little proteins sticking off of them. We see the cartoons. Actually, those proteins would be like my arm. And then the glycoproteins on top of them would be like my hand. And then my fingers would be the sialic acids. So sialic acids are these little nine carbon sugars, which we put on the coating of all of our cells in our body. And really, it's the first thing that something touches when they touch our cells. When our immune system looks at our cells, the sialic acids are what they first take a look at. Uh, Why is that important? It's important because um, sialic acids can be a source of inflammation in our body, a significant source of inflammation. Let me explain. Our body makes only one type of sialic acid. It's called NU5AC. NU5AC is what we put on our cells. And our immune system recognizes NU5AC and says, ah, this is a human body, no problem. On the other hand, non-human mammals, most non-human mammals makes two kinds of sialic acids. They make the same kind that we have, NU5AC, but they also make NU5GC. NU5GC is a sialic acid that we don't make. So when you eat or consume these non-human mammals like red meat, basically, um, it gets digested into your body and your body absorbs these sialic acids whole, both the NU5AC and the NU5GC. And unfortunately, the enzyme in our body that puts these things onto our cells can't tell the difference between NU5AC and NU5GC. So we get NU5GC sialic acids put on to the cell surface of our bodies. That's a problem because when our immune system comes along and they see what's on the surface of the cell, it's now not recognizing this as self, and there is an inflammatory response there. This is called a sialic acid-induced response. And there was a recent paper that looked at this out of France where they took the diet of of, uh, different people, very detailed diet, and they broke down how much NU5GC was in this diet. Now, there's NU5GC in, uh, in red meat, so in cow, in pork, Uh, It's not in chicken because that's not a mammal. It's not in fish because that's not a mammal, but it's also in cheese. Uh, So getting getting back to our cheese, uh, I don't know how much of it is in Swiss cheese. I noticed that mozzarella when I looked (laughs) it up had the lowest level of NU5GC in it. Um, But why this is so important is because they believe that this may be, there is a link to this potentially in terms of colorectal cancer and in terms of cardiovascular Mm. disease. You see, Jeff, there's been a lot of debate as to why is it that red meat particularly causes the progression of cardiovascular disease while fish and maybe even white meat like chicken doesn't do that to the same degree. And they believe that this might be one of the things that explains that. So what they did in the study is, again, they, they 
took everyone's diet and they figured out how much new 5GC there was in their diet. And they were able to correlate that with the amount of antibodies against new 5GC in their bloodstream. And that, of course, being a surrogate for inflammation. So uh, we know that the more meat that you eat, the higher your BMI is, the higher your BMI is, the more likely you you are to get COVID-19. So this is all emerging research and uh, they're looking at this. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, it it seems that the countries that have the highest um, incidences of metabolic syndrome, for example, high blood glucose levels, uh, high blood pressure, um, obesity, et cetera, that, that high levels of um, metabolic syndrome are, seem to be very correlated with chronic disease, which seems to be co- comorbidities um, associated with aggressive COVID resulting in hospitalization or, or um, you know, in some cases, fatalities. Right. Do you think that, you know, the, the SAD, the, the uh, standard American diet and the adoption of the Western diet um, in general has made um, COVID-19 kind of more dangerous for those countries that, um, that are consuming that diet and by extension have, you know, higher instances of, of metabolic syndrome? Yeah, I do. Um, totally. There, there was a study that was done recently looking at France, Britain, uh, Spain, and the United States. And they, what they looked at, it was a healthcare uh, subject. So these were, these were physicians and nurses that were in this network uh, on COVID-19, and they asked them to do a, a diary. And they found it was a very extensive diary. And what they found after they controlled for what, what area of medicine they were in, that those that said that they were on a high high carb, no, low carbohydrate, high protein diet. So like the paleo diet versus those that were plant-based, those that, that were on a low carbohydrate diet, low carbohydrate diet, high, high protein had four times the risk of severe COVID-19 than those that described themselves on a plant-based diet. Um, and that's for COVID-19. But if you look at what you're asking is overall of these countries, I mean, let's just let's just step back and look at the thirty thousand foot level. Notwithstanding forks over knives, notwithstanding um, uh, T. Colin Campbell's the China study, which you know you can pick apart, but the overall thing. I mean, when you look at this, the United States has just a crazy amount of amount of money dedicated to coronary catheterization units that no other country really has in the world. I mean, I, I had a friend who was the only cardiologist in the country of Malawi. She, she was a couple of years behind me at uh, Loma Linda <laughs> University, and she was the only cardiologist in the country of Malawi. She was not doing cardiac catheterizations. She was doing, uh, she was looking at valves. She was looking at, you know, post-infectious rheumatic fever. She was doing a whole host of things, but she was not really doing a lot of cardiac catheterization. Why? They don't have that Western diet in the country of Malawi. You know, what do we have over here? Yeah. We've got EKGs, aspirin, cath units. We've got we've got it down to like it's got to be there within yeah. 90 minutes, skin to skin. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, or just the prescription or potential overprescription of statins versus actually, uh, you know, addressing root yeah. causes, et cetera, around right. just lifestyle choices. Right. Um, well, we've we've layered a lot of cheese singles. Um, I have a whole other uh, section of questions as it relates to the spike protein, but out of just respect for your time, perhaps we um, cubbyhole those for, for episode number two because uh, I know how much you are passionate about um, kind of 
demystifying uh, theories that can be kind of specious or kind of travel as memes. And, yeah. uh, the, you know, this mythical Sprite protein has taken on such a, uh, such a life of its own. I think I even saw a meme saying that the spike protein was a distant relative to Spike Lee, um, <laughs> which I, I quickly discarded as misinformation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was going to ask you about it, but I figured even despite the fact I don't have many letters after my name, I can, uh, can probably figure that one out. Yeah. Well, don't, but, don't um, forget Spike, uh, uh, Snoopy's cousin in Needles. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But there's yeah. so much interesting um, discussion that I think we could have around uh, the spike protein and just the fact that this this protein has come into um, the uh, you know common vernacular is kind of amazing. And you know, despite like how messy and in some cases polluted the ecosystem has been, one of really the upsides to this dark cloud this uh, is that um that people have taken a keen interest in mm -hmm. medical science yes. i mean i know for my, just in my own sake i'm this kind of moonlighting microbiologist and and i'm not alone you know there's there's hundreds of thousands of, of folks like me that have taken greater interest in learning about the body learning about the immune system learning about the microbiome and how it works now that can have a flip side where you know people know just enough to be dangerous and so i think that you know, that's why yeah. um you know i really try to um educate myself and inform the people around me but i really rely very very heavily uh, on you dr schwalt and and other um, physicians who have dedicated their their lives to clinical research and to building um a uh, um you know knowledge in, in this topic um, I, I would just, I, I suppose, ask you on any future prognostication that you might have, you know, given yeah. here we are, there's just uh, some things that I suppose we need to be humble about, which we can't understand everything. There are these strange kind of two months, two month valleys and, and, and spikes yeah. as it pertains to um, these outbreaks. And, you know, I was looking at, um, you know, the the efflorescence of, of the virus in the South, in the United States. And I was like, oh my God, you know, that's where it's going to start because people are more likely to be indoors yep. there in the summer. And boy, watch out Northeast, watch out um, West Coast, here it's coming in the fall. And that was not a, a good diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, we're seeing, um, thankfully, you know, we're seeing not just a plateau, but a dip. Yeah. Um, in, in cases and, you know, deaths, fatalities seem to follow along with that, you know, a couple weeks later. Right. So, you know, are we headed towards this kind of endemicity um, through a strange form of blended immunity, either vaccine induced and, and somewhat natural? Um, or are there risks that a, a deadlier variant, you know, may emerge and boy, we'll be here in January again you know, pounding our heads against the the wall. Um, I know it's very, very hard at this juncture to yeah. to put forth anything that that is data based, but I wonder what your feelings are. You know, I go and look at what's happened before, and I know that the the coronavirus uh, species is different than the flu. They're both RNA, 
but they are different in terms of how how they get in and, and spread. This is a much more infectious uh, virus than the than the flu. Um, it's more airborne. It seems to be doing much much better, more successful. But the flu uh, lasted a couple of years, and we're we're not quite at a couple of years yet. So I just based on that, I, I think that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I just can't see how the virus can dance around in terms of mutations uh, around the uh, around the immunity that's already out there. Just to put it into perspective, hmm. we had a huge spike here in the country of the alpha variant or the UK variant uh, in, in January and February. This thing is, this Delta variant is far more infectious than that one was. And yet we see a spike that is in most states of the same amplitude, if not smaller than what we saw in, in January and February and a lot less deaths. Um, for the most part, because of the of the vaccine. Now, of course, there's some there's some exceptions to that in, for instance, Idaho and um, Montana, uh, where they overwhelmed the system there, um, presumably because of of low vaccination rates, and they're just overwhelmed. But generally speaking, even though this was a much better, in in the the wrong term, or, or maybe worse would be a better term, a much worse virus in terms of its infectivity and all of that, we still we didn't see a proportional increase in cases, which tells me that something is being built into the system, that natural immunity is having an effect, and that hopefully after a few iterations of this, we're going to come out of this and it's going to be something like the flu uh, eventually that comes up every once in a while and it going to spike a bad year and hopefully maybe even go away. Uh, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, I... I you know, with the flu, there seems to be a general intersubjective agreement um, or a moral threshold that society is willing to Live with it. agree yeah. on or maintain yeah. where, you know, okay, in a bad year, maybe 40,000, 50,000 people die in a, in a bad flu season. Right. Um, and, and we seem to be able to exist with that degree of endemicity. So it'll be, you know, um, interesting to see, obviously, you know, any death from viral disease is a, is a tragedy, but you know, what we've seen over the last, um, year has been just, uh, yeah. just heart wrenching for so many people. So, um, yeah, I really just, uh, appreciate again, you know, all of the work and the information that you're bringing to the fore, it is so helpful and it just lowers the temperature. I mean, I know that for me, I had COVID um, pretty severely in 2020. And before there was a lot of information out there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, fortunately, I have a meditation practice and I'm somewhat of a stoic um, <laughs> that I was able to, uh, you know, leverage some of the modalities that I've been taught to, you know, to keep my cortisol and epinephrine levels at a certain level and not get you know, yeah. not have my amygdala hijacked and I could stay in my prefrontal cortex and, you know, make some just general rational decisions about how to be. But, you know, I'm, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not impervious to feeling waves of panic and fear. Right. And, uh, I just think that, um, that just good evidence-based calm, information that that doesn't look down its nose at anyone is just so helpful because from a you know 
fear can be also understood as a rip as as respect for something powerful. That's true, um, and that's the way that we should be thinking about you know, the vaccine, about the virus, all of these things. These things are powerful and we should respect them, but we should also know them. Right. And when we know them, they become less, they, they don't induce the same panic. Right. Um, so I just uh, think that the conversations that you're having um, with uh, with your platform, MedCram, and I've seen you with Rhonda Patrick and, and all that, they're just so, so helpful. And um and I hope we can uh, we can do more. So yeah, thanks I so mean, much. Um, love to come back, Roger. On. And and yeah, and just tell us if, if um, just tell my listeners, and certainly we'll include this in all the notes and in the outro and intro. But where people can find um, you and your work, and keep abreast of all the information that you're creating. Yeah, so we are on uh, we're at medcram.com, M-E-D-C-R-A-M.com, and there we'll, you'll find all of our, our videos that get updated. We also uh, broadcast to YouTube as well. We also have um, Twitter accounts and Instagram as well, and then, of course, on Facebook as well. So we're on all of those social media pages, but our home base is medcram.com. Nice. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Roger Schwelt. To watch Dr. Schwelt's videos on COVID and more, go to medcram.com. Feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jake Laub, Kamali Martin, Meg Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fritz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.